To create a nuclear program, to take it to the point where you have a working nuclear bomb, you have to have a vast industrial effort. It has to be incredibly coordinated. The logistics are huge. And so when you look at the relative sizes of those programs, with the Manhattan Project, you're talking about over 130,000 individuals involved. A $2 billion program, which in today's money would be well over 20 billion pounds. And America had the advantage that it wasn't being bombed. It was just another program, and America had huge resources. Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade That was Robert Oppenheimer, head of the Manhattan Project and father of the nuclear age. We all know that the Americans got there first and how the nuclear weapons were used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki to end the war in the East. But why did Nazi Germany not have the bomb? After all, in 1941, under the brilliant Werner Heisenberg, its nuclear science led the world. This is what we're discussing today. So, Jamie, how worried were the Allies that Germany was creating a nuclear bomb? In short, very. Uh, there's no doubt that America and Britain thought the Germans were far more advanced than they actually were, and for many good reasons. But the problem is, certainly in the intelligence world, that if you have very fragmented intelligence, if it's coming from many sources, or even if you don't hear anything, you start filling the vacuum with what you want to see, what you want to hear. You remember the sexed-up dossier of Blair during the Iraq war. and I remember it well. Never trusted a politician since. <laughs> <laughs> I think many people would argue the same. But you get this in any conflict. You're, you're trying to pick your way through this scattered intelligence. And there are many reasons why that happens, and there, there's much evidence of why the West, why the Allies, thought that Germany was more advanced than they actually were. OK, Jamie, where's the evidence to show that the Allies were worried? Well, firstly, Tom, let's go to the end of the war and an organisation called the Alsos Mission... Uh, this was a body sent into Axis territory by the Americans to scoop up 
German nuclear scientists to, to go through their labs to pick up nuclear material. They went into Italy first in 1943, and then they ended up in Germany. And guarded by uh, U.S. Army troops and traveling and requisitioned Hanamag half-tracks, they scoured Germany, trying to find the evidence that Germany had developed the bomb or was moving in that direction. They picked up a lot of scientists, and finally they tracked down, picking up evidence all the way. They got to Swabia, to Schwabenland, as the Germans say. In the village of Heigerloch, they found a door below a cliff under a church. Colonel Boris Pasch, who led the Alsace mission, uh, shot the lock away, and he went down the steps, and there was the evidence of Germany's nuclear program. What, the sum total? The sum total. And as I said, when I mentioned the sex of dossier, and you, you see and believe what you want to believe, if you have your own nuclear program, you think that the enemy is also going to be there, um, is also going to be at the same stage, particularly, as you said right at the beginning, that Germany in 1941 was actually ahead of America. They simply didn't industrialize. So Boris Pash went down those steps not knowing what to expect. He found the German nuclear pile, the reactor, which was not huge. It was the size of a Tian. It turned out the Germans had never achieved a single nuclear chain reaction. The following reading is taken from James's thriller Hollandfeuer and describes the moment at which Colonel Pasch and his Alsos mission finally uncover the final secret of the Germans' nuclear program. They found it quickly. The entrance, a concrete box construction set behind a half-timbered house and built into the side of an 80-foot cliff. A cave cellar, prepared and occupied in the last futile months. The hideout and resting place of Germany's greatest wartime mystery. Low profile, unremarkable, now discovered. He had seen a hundred installations like it. This was the final piece, the concluding act. He gazed at the steel doors and up to the church on the summit. Heaven and hell at a single map reference, the kind of paradox the Nazis enjoyed. The steps were narrow, worn smooth, the descent slow and picked out with the intermittent beams of flashlights. Breathing was tight, the silence broken only by the shuffling tramp of feet and mechanical ticking of the detection devices. Emptiness. It had the chill feel of abandonment, the depression of failure about it. They were at the bottom. The illumination ballooned into the cave, reaching into the corners, crawling towards the lip of a pit sunk into the floor at the far end. Uranbrenner! Uranbrenner! The German was gesticulating urgently, trying to win friends, show useful. See anything, Samuel? The colonel whispered to the scientist, edging forward. But the scientist remained still, staring down, his face shadow-hidden from his companions. It could be shock or relief, naked emotion, the drying of vocabulary overburdened with experience. Damn it, they were all tired. The colonel strode over to stand beside him, dipping his flashlight. Uranbrenner! Uranbrenner! The metal gleamed the polished alloy surface reflecting the artificial poles of light playing across its surface. So this was what had been evacuated from Berlin, what they had been chasing. A small vessel with a metal lid, a few feet in diameter, placed in a concrete-lined hole in the ground. Other members of the team drew round. 
Uran Brenner. It's a goddamn practical joke. It's a goddamn chamber pot. Sure as hell stinks to me. This for real? Uh, are we in Oz? I've seen tea urns bigger than that. Where's the shielding, the instrumentation? There's gotta be a decoy. Nothing's doing here. Might as well throw it to the Brits. Voices climbed in disappointment and disbelief in the anticlimactic aftermath of feeble discovery and shredded expectation. It could not be the sum total of all their effort, achievement, all their fears. Uranbrenner. Decoy? For real? Yeah, might as well throw it to the Brits. They had flown in a Dakota load of boffins, were waiting for the call, could bring their sardonic stiffness and analytical equipment, their groomed moustaches and clipped limey accents, their subtle superiority and sense of irony. This went far beyond irony, and the colonel looked and started to chuckle, the tears pricking then streaming from his eyes. It was something to tell the grandchildren, something heroic for the history books. He could see the absurdity, the humour in it, could see that the Alsos was had. No close-run thing, no knife-edged jewel, simply an illusion at the end of the yellow brick road. The master race had been primitives all along. As the ALSOS mission member and nuclear scientist Samuel Gugschmidt pointed out, that was the moment where he realised that the German nuclear weapons programme and research programme amounted to very little indeed. So apart from this uh, tiny apparatus down in the cellar, they also picked up 664 uranium cubes suspended in heavy water, and that had all been removed from the Kaiser Wilhelm Research Institute near Berlin. That was the sum total. And the Americans, I think, were pretty shocked at how flimsy, how uh, minor the research programme had been. They, they really expected something huge. So what was the intelligence that led to the misreading of the situation? Well, I pointed out that intelligence was fragmentary. One of the things that had happened was that Alan Dulles uh, had moved to Bern. He was the American head of OSS in Bern. He went there openly, actually, as Roosevelt's special representative. He set up shop in Bern, and the intelligence started coming in. And he was always on the lookout for nuclear subjects, for anything that might, might hint at what the Germans were doing. And of course, if, if there's a vacuum, you start thinking, oh, maybe they're just covering it up. And Ultra, the Enigma secrets and Bletchley Park, uh, w were also trying to unravel what was going on. And Dulles got a lot of information about a lot of things. He was given plans about the V2 rocket program. He was given the plans and the order of battle uh, for the defense of Normandy by the Germans. He was in touch with the anti-Hitler coup plotters. So there was a lot of stuff coming in. And the sort of information that arrived was that Franco was selling tungsten to the Germans. And so Dulles and the other experts were thinking, does this mean that it's heading for the German nuclear program? So that is the situation 
This is all in, what, 1942? He arrived in 42 in Bern. And so for the rest of the war, they, they had their ears and eyes open for anything that might hint at what the Germans were doing. So they built up a picture. Uh, OSS built up a picture. MI6 built up a picture. They were simply groping in the dark for, for what the Germans were up to. Okay, so it wasn't just intelligence work. It was also uh, the Allies took direct action against the German nuclear program. They couldn't afford not to. They couldn't just sit back and let Germany develop the bomb. They, they would have been asleep on the job if they had done that, and, and they just couldn't let that happen, uh, particularly given the, the state of their own nuclear research. And the main focus of their attention was the Rukan Dam in Norway. This is where the Germans were producing heavy water, the only place in the world where it was produced. The Allies knew that this was a key part of the German nuclear program and that it would be used to enrich uranium. So it proved. So they started planning the first assault, really, against the dam and the heavy water plant there was in late 1942. They sent in two gliders with commandos. Uh, those gliders crashed. Um, many of the men were killed, and the survivors were either executed after having their hands tied behind their backs with barbed wire or taken to a Norwegian hospital where a quizzling doctor injected them with air and killed them that way. So it was barbarous and, and brutal, but it, it gave an indication to the Allies that this was a target worth going for. They were onto something, and in the end, it was Operation Gunnersby in 43, February 43, where Norwegian SOE men got to the dam, got down into the heavy water plant, and destroyed heavy water production. The heavy water that got out of that plant, they then, uh, the Norwegians, then blew up or sank the ferry that was carrying those supplies. So it, it put back German heavy water production a long way, and a lot of those facilities were then transferred back to Germany. The Heroes of Telemark. I, I'm, I've got to watch that movie. I think it's uh, probably since I was a small boy, I haven't seen that movie. No, but it, 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 it tells the story pretty well. And it, and it shows the, the, the contribution that Norwegian SOE uh, made to that mission. And luckily, those men who took part in Gunnersby actually survived the war. So they're absolute heroes. Uh, and what about the Soviets? Were they also worried about the German nuclear program? Towards the end of the war, I think what they were most worried about is that the Americans would get their hands on German nuclear research and German nuclear scientists. They had cause to be worried because there were very few Germans who wanted to surrender to the Soviets. And it's no accident that whether it's the revenge weapon programs, the V2, V1 rocket program scientists or the nuclear scientists, they essentially surrendered to the Americans or the British. Stalin, when his two generals were heading for Berlin, Konyev and Zhukov, he sent his NKVD men along as well to get to the Kaiser Wilhelm Research Institute and take whatever they could find, um, such as three tons of yellow cake that they eventually took away from there. 
there's been a lot of talk by historians about why the Soviet generals were pushing so hard to get to Berlin. And to my mind, it's a lot of PR puff, a lot of publishers trying to find a hook saying, oh, well, uh, the, the competition between the two Soviet generals was because they were desperate to get uh, German nuclear research. Uh, it's absolute nonsense. Uh, if, if they could, if the Germans could get uh, Goering's stash and haul of artwork, looted art treasures away from his house near Berlin, Karrenhalle, on trains and trucks, and they could certainly have spirited away German nuclear scientists and German nuclear material, which is what happened. It headed down to southern Germany. So I don't believe for a second that the Soviets thought that the same wouldn't happen to German nuclear material. Yeah, I mean, it was a more general push, wasn't it, to just um, make sure that the Americans and the Allies were there and that the Soviets didn't overrun the whole of Europe. Well, and, and, and the, the, the reason the generals went for it was one, pride, two, it had been awed by Stalin, and three, they didn't want to be executed. <laughs> so yes. that, that, that really Can gives us an idea. Well, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, let's dig into the actual projects on the Allied side and on the German side. This is the Manhattan Project versus what was going on at the Kaiser William Research Institute. Yes, and it, it, it gives an idea of why the Germans never made the cut on, on nuclear weapons. Because to create a nuclear program, to take it to the point where you have a working nuclear bomb, you have to have a vast industrial effort. It has to be incredibly coordinated. The logistics are huge. And so when you look at the relative sizes of those programs, with the Manhattan Project, you're talking about over 130,000 individuals involved. A $2 billion program, which in today's money would be well over £20 billion. America had the advantage that it wasn't being bombed. It was just another program, and uh, America had huge resources. Uh, it was also on the offensive by that stage, where the Germans were on the defensive. So if you look at the Kaiser Wilhelm Research Institute, it was still in the lab. They never actually produced anything, and as we saw from what was found in Heigelock, they didn't have a functioning nuclear pile. The, the Manhattan Project at Redgate Woods uh, started building the Chicago One, their first reactor pile, and then had several more by the end of the war. These were vast, vast industrial processes and scientific processes. They had uh, uranium rods to make. They had Los Alamos, where the bomb was actually built. And it took huge coordination. Just to really um, create a couple of bombs at the end of it, wasn't it? Yes, and, and the Germans just didn't have that capacity. And certainly by the end of the war, they were in no fit state to produce that sort of level of scientific and industrial energy to create it. And didn't they also have a, a rivalry that the Allies tended to work as a collective and try and push forward to you know resolution of problems, whereas the Germans were chaotic. We always think of the Germans as being ordered and uh, that things will move smoothly along. But in fact, it was incredibly bureaucratic. There were huge rivalries between different organisations, between the Kaiser Wilhelm Research Institute and other research bodies, between uh, the Luftwaffe, who actually controlled the project under Goering, the other bodies as well, who were all competing. 
for material and for funding, and people had their pet projects. So, whereas in in the Allied camp, you had the Tube Alloys project in the UK and the Rutherford laboratories at Cambridge working incredibly closely with the Manhattan Project in America. So, uh, yes, there was there there was it was just a bigger effort and a better run effort. Yeah, and I mean. German, and the Nazi Germany was a criminal enterprise with the usual problems that you have there of everybody watching their back. Yes, it was a, it was, it was a hoodlum state, essentially. Okay, Jamie, why didn't the Nazis create the bomb? Well, Tom, let's start with Adolf Hitler. Fact is, he didn't like the Jews. He believed entirely that nuclear science was Jewish science because of Albert Einstein. So right from the top down there was no impetus to create a nuclear bomb. And Hitler, although he's, he was obsessed with technology and technological solutions, and he was often fired up by seeing a, a giant tank, for example, or seeing a, a V2 rocket, although at the start, in, even in 1943, he thought that the V2 rocket was simply another artillery shell uh, and an expensive artillery shell that would only deliver a limited payload over a further distance. So he had pet projects like his henchmen. Nuclear weapons were not one of them. And if you start believing that nuclear science is Jewish science, you're never, ever going to give it the push it requires. And a lot of those Jewish scientists, leading nuclear scientists, basically left, as Albert Einstein did in the, in the late 1930s, and ended up working with the Manhattan Project. So Germany lost a lot of its scientific base because of that. Don't just take it from us. Here is Sir Arthur Harris, Bomber Harris, speaking to his men at a Bomber Command reunion dinner in the 1970s. In this clip, Harris is talking about the atom bomb, and Hitler's posturing and vicious attitude towards the Jewish scientific community. There was a meeting amongst the high-ups in Germany as to whether or not they would do this, that, and the other thing. And when it came to the question of whether they would develop the atom bomb, and don't forget that before the war, the Germans were ahead of everybody in that particular nefarious pursuit, when it came to that question, luckily for us and the world at large, Hitler dismissed it. He said he'd have nothing to do with it because it was all Jew science. Well, that was a very lucky decision. But Albert Speer comment in his book, apropos of that decision, at that very early date, that he was glad because he couldn't possibly have spared the enormous amount of skilled and semi-skilled and unskilled labor for any such ambitious project as the manufacture of the atom bomb from the necessity of using those people to repair the bomb damage to the German armament industry. Well, that was in June 42. And, of course, that damage went on crescendo after that. Okay, so the, the Jewish scientists fled, 
Um, what about uh, what effect did the Blitzkrieg have on the German uh, plans? Well, it permeated the Nazi psyche. And because they believed in Blitzkrieg and lightning war, because they believed that they would win the war quickly, there was no urge to develop, to industrialize nuclear potential. They thought that they would take Britain out quickly, uh, just as they had taken out France and Czechoslovakia and Poland, and they thought they would get into Russia extremely quickly. So they'd have no issues with resources? No, and they, they were on the offensive. They, they, they were pushing for tanks and for aircraft. That was their priority. It, it certainly wasn't developing the ability of the Kaiser Wilhelm Research Institute to develop a nuclear bomb. Yeah, and of course, quite quickly after the Blitzkrieg, they suddenly found themselves having a war on many fronts. They did. There was the war at the, uh, in the Atlantic, so they had to produce U-boats, and they saw that as a way of bringing Britain to its knees. So why, why develop a nuclear bomb? On the Eastern Front, what they found, certainly after the fall of Stalingrad at the beginning of 1943, is that Blitzkrieg had turned sour. They ended up in a massive defensive campaign. They were on the back foot. And what they were trying to do was to create bombers, fighters, uh, artillery pieces, anti-aircraft guns. So again, that became their priority, their key need. And given what happens in the Kursk salient, for example, and the huge tank battles, given what happened at Stalingrad, they were simply in no position to coordinate a nuclear program. They, they had to get those tanks out there. They had to produce anti-aircraft guns and anti-aircraft weapons for the two million people in Germany who were committed to the defence of Germany, uh, you know, trying to stop bomber command hitting them. So if you look at the sorts of material that they were trying to produce by that stage, you can see in the figures the sort of things that were needed by the Reich at that stage. And, and Tom, you have the figures here that show the, the level of German investment, the, the number of units they were producing for a conventional war. So nuclear warfare didn't even come into the equation. OK, firstly, tank production... In 1942, it's 5,500. 1943, it was 11,600. And in 1944, it was 18,956 tanks. And aircraft, in uh, 42, it was 13,000. In 1943, it was 20,000. And 1944, it was 35,000. So you have to take your hat off to Albert Speer for organising that in spite of what was going on and in spite of the heavy bombing inflicted on him by RAF Bomber Command. Absolutely. And also the whole thing was run on slave labour as well, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Germany was using 12 million slave labourers by that stage. And you can't really trust slave labour to produce decent stuff. There was a lot of sabotage going on. And you know, if you take somewhere like Nordhausen, run by the SS, where the V2 rocket was built underground, there were twenty to 30,000 slave labourers killed there. And I've always said, for any 
uninformed woke out there who simply goes down one route about slavery, it's worth remembering that these slave laborers who worked for the Germans were shot, hanged, beheaded, kicked to, into cesspits to drown, uh, were beaten to death, uh, that in Berlin, for example, they were used to clear incendiary bombs uh, by hand. So they had the most appalling time. And it's, it's also worth remembering that the Vikings too used a million slave laborers uh, that were sold through their slave markets in Dublin. I'm afraid it's been going on for a long time. It has. So don't pull down statues. That's what I say. And you've also mentioned Bomber Command and the effect they were having on keeping back a vast amount of manpower and material in Germany itself. And also disrupting everything that was going on in Germany. It's often been said that had Germany prepared for the war better, had it built facilities underground and manufactured things there, they would never have been beaten. And so if the German nuclear research program had moved underground and had it industrialized in the same way the Americans had and been underground, it would have been extremely difficult to dislodge them. And you've got figures of the amount of tonnage dropped by Bomber Command. I think over the whole war, it was probably about a million tonnes. It was, it? yeah, it was just under a million tonnes worth of bombs and sea mines. Yes, and, 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 and the frequency and the weight of that bombing increased dramatically uh, in the last few years of the war. Yeah, 1944, it was over half a million tonnes just in that year. Yes, and, and, and people have often said, oh, area bombing doesn't work. But if you think that it caused 10,088 millimeter anti-aircraft guns or anti-tank guns that they were used as as well, um, that it caused 10,000 of those to be redeployed to Germany to defend Germany, that was material and ordnance that wasn't on the Eastern Front. Absolutely, and they didn't have 10,000 there as well. I mean, the figures were that they only had then a couple of thousand left on the Eastern Front because of that. And that explains why the Soviets punched through with the sort of ease they did. Uh, they would have been seriously hamstrung had, had, that, had that amount, that weight of fire been available to the Germans on, on their, in defensive positions on the Eastern Front. Okay, so let's get back to the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project is not underground. There's a huge advantage with the way that the Americans and the Allies could develop their program. Yes, I mean, they were safe. They weren't being bombed, so they could make the bomb, whereas the Germans couldn't. Simple as that. Yeah, and, and also added to that was old Heisenberg, who was heading up the German effort, essentially didn't really believe in it. Well, didn't believe it was possible. Heisenberg is... An interesting character. I think that the jury has often been out on him and whether he believed in it or not. They often talk about his meeting with Niels Bohr in 1934, and both men had different versions of it. Uh, Niels Bohr, I think, claimed that Heisenberg was really trying to recruit him to the German nuclear program. Heisenberg said he was simply trying to come to a deal that Germany wouldn't go down the uh, nuclear bomb route if the Allies agreed not to as well. I, I, I think it's a slightly more nuanced story. I think Heisenberg 
knew that Germany was not in a position, didn't have the material or manpower to develop the bomb, as simple as that. And I think that he steered the program more towards nuclear power. They were trying to produce a U-boat power plant uh, that would allow U-boats to circumnavigate the globe and never have to come up for air and all of that sort of thing. And that became a priority. But given that it took years after the bomb was developed to actually produce a nuclear reactor that could power a submarine, I think the Germans too would have found that extremely difficult to do. But Heisenberg, in a way, closed off the bomb option. You can tell what his thoughts were because in the farm hall tapes, the tapes made by MI5 of captured Germans, he was secretly taped talking to that the father of German nuclear science. Was, was this after they'd been captured? This was after they'd been captured. That he was having a conversation with Otto Hahn, who won the Nobel Prize. He invented nuclear fission. So you can see how advanced the Germans were. But he and Heisenberg were talking. They were captured on tape by MI5, talking about the American nuclear bomb attack on Hiroshima. And they were absolutely amazed. They, were, they, they, they couldn't believe that the Americans had actually done it. Yeah, they just didn't believe that the Americans were so far advanced. And they had managed to weaponize their technology when the Germans had not. So uh, Heisenberg simply didn't think it was a practical thing to do. And certainly once the war had started, the Germans were never going to develop a nuclear bomb. Then another key and large figure, Hermann Goering. Yes, he loomed over the whole project, and he was actually the death knell of the whole German nuclear programme. And everything else. Uh, yes. I, I, I mean, there are many things that stopped Goering from being a force in the nuclear realm. I, I think the thing to remember about Goering, he had been shot in the nuts during the Munich Putsch in 1923, uh, as historians put it uh, rather mildly, shot in the groin. And so it wasn't Hitler who only had one ball, it was actually Goering. In fact, he probably didn't have either, and, and uh, he... Um, he was on the same, same team as Goebbels. <laughs> well, he, 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 pro he probably didn't even father his own daughter, uh, wouldn't have been able to. But because of that wound he sustained in 1923, he ended up going to a clinic in Innsbruck, being put on morphine, and that was the start of his lifelong morphine addiction. And that is why he became hugely fat, a rapacious art thief, uh, travelled Europe in his private train Asia, uh, pinching art from around Europe, used to go to the Jeux de Pomme in Paris to pick up ERR paintings, stuff that had been confiscated by the Reich. That was that was Goering's position. No, Hitler never got rid of him, in spite of his incompetence, in spite of the fact that he had promised to bring Britain to its knees with his bombers, which failed to do, in spite of the fact he had promised to bring Stalingrad to its knees with his bombing, when in fact he just created a, a defensive shield yeah. by creating rubble. He, he then promised to save von Paulus' Sixth Army at Stalingrad by dropping air supplies, his bombers, weren't large enough, didn't have the capacity to do that. If you look at Goering's knowledge of technology, it was so limited that when he was shown a plan for a four-engine German bomber, he wanted to have it turned into a dive bomber. 
And that's really why Germany never had a four-engine bomber throughout the Second World War. Had they done that, they could have flattened Britain uh, at the start of the war. They would have been able to reach uh, Soviet munitions factories and other factories taken to safety in the Urals. So he was in charge of the nuclear program. This is the man who was the chief of it. He had no real interest in it, no understanding of it. And so the program was essentially parked. And the other thing about Goering is that his power was utterly eclipsed after the fall of Stalingrad. He was out of favour and he just hunted, sat in Karenhalle, his mock Norse palace outside Berlin, and counted his treasures. That's all he did. He didn't have the status or the power or the influence or the interest to push the German nuclear programme. It would have been very different, perhaps, had it been in, in the hands of the SS. Uh, he was also up against the other key reason why the Germans didn't develop the nuclear bomb, and that is V2 weapons, the revenge weapons that Adolf Hitler loved so much. Uh, V2 weapons really were a priority at the end, towards the end of the war. They certainly were in the eyes of Hitler, they, but Hitler was simply grasping at straws. But he thought this would be the miracle, this would be the salvation, that the Allies would be destroyed before they even got to any of the beaches of Europe. And he was utterly wrong. Uh, first of all, there was the doodlebug, the V1, uh, and 30,000 of those were produced. Almost 10,000 of those were fired. And yes, they did damage. But by that stage, Britain was used to being bombed, being hit, and nothing was going to stop preparations for the D-Day landings and the subsequent invasion of Europe. So uh, Hitler was, as I said, grasping straws. And then the V-2 rocket that he initially poo-pooed, but then grasped at as something that could save him. The V-2 Experimentation and Development Centre was at Pinamunde. Bomber Command attacked the site in 1943, and this reading is taken from the post-war dispatch on war operations. The experimental V-weapon establishment at Pinamunde on the Baltic coast was attacked by a force of nearly 600 heavies on the 17th and 18th of August, 1943. To ensure the bombing pattern needed to knock out the many small buildings dispersed over a large area, the attack was delivered in full moonlight, although this gave maximum opportunity to enemy night fighters. As the route to the target was largely identical with that used in previous attacks in Berlin, a harassing raid on the capital by mosquitoes was arranged to deceive the defence, at least for a time as to the real objective. This ruse was initially successful, but as soon as the enemy realised the real target, Night fighters were brought up from covering Berlin and as far as the Ruhr to intercept the bombers on their return route. The last of the three waves of bombers suffered rather heavy losses. In all, 40 aircraft were missing on the Pinamunda operation, but the bombing achieved outstanding results. In the living and sleeping quarters of the establishment, 90 detached huts and three large barracks were destroyed or severely damaged. While in the northern section, the senior office's mess and 35 other buildings were shattered. Units of the factory workshops were also hit, and it is known that casualties were heavy and included some important scientists and leading members of the staff of the experimental establishment. German threats of attack against this country by secret weapons thereafter became noticeably less specific as regards dates. 
the V2 was pretty inaccurate. It wasn't such a long-range weapon, but it was the world's first ballistic missile. There's that Tom Lehrer song about Werner von Braun saying, you know, what goes up must come down. That was Hitler's hope, that this this rocket that carried a ton of explosive would actually save his bacon. Yeah, and I mean that picture of the um, taken of the Earth from outer space in 1946 by a camera attached to a V2 rocket. It's the first time that was done. Yes, and and the V2 rocket was an amazing bit of engineering, but the resources used just to build that and bring it together mate the warhead to the the rocket itself. Uh, The ethanol that was used took up a third of Germany's ethanol production uh, towards the end of the war. Uh, And trying to control liquid oxygen and ethanol and the hydrogen peroxide that fueled the pumps that forced the fuel into the combustion chamber, it it was incredibly explosive, incredibly difficult to handle. Moving it around, creating a mobile platform, it was very advanced for its time. The Germans also tested a submarine-towed V-2 rocket that was intended to bombard the United States. And there was also a plan to create a second stage um, by Werner von Braun, who, uh, guess what? It ended up as the Apollo program. Yeah. But people conveniently forget that Werner von Braun was actually an SS major. <laughs> so He got re-employed. He got re-employed, as, as so many of them did. And um, if you look at the V2 program, it, it consumed a lot of resources. That was the focus. There was no way you could have a long-term uh, nuclear program with with all these other competing pressures. It's fascinating to see that the V-2 rocket was basically copied wholesale by the Soviets and became their Scunner missile. It was then redesigned, turned into a different missile, but still with many V-2 characteristics as a Scud missile, uh, which also gave the Russians their first tactical nuclear missile and was, as a conventional missile, was sold throughout the third world. Uh, we saw it uh, in the 1991 Gulf War. It's why British special forces went into the desert to try and stop the Scud being fired, stop Saddam Hussein trying to rope the Israelis into the conflict as well. And so he fired Scuds into Saudi Arabia and Israel. They did very little damage, killed not very many people. It was basically uh, an obsolete device. I mean, it's still in use today, but it just shows that the V-2 rocket has a, a very long reach. It's ahead uh, of its time. Yeah, very much. Very, very much so. But you can see why uh, nuclear weapons didn't get a look-in uh, by that stage of the war. Yeah, extraordinary contrast between you know the brilliant minds that, that were some brilliant minds in Germany and the utter incompetence of some of the leadership. Yes, and I always say that had the program been under the control of the SS, uh, then it might have had a bit more impetus. I mean, there was a a deeply, profoundly evil character called SS Brigade Führer Hans Kammler, who ran a lot of the secret um, operations of the SS uh, logistics building. Um, he was responsible for digging out caves in uh, Lower Silesia, 
Um, no one to this day really knows what they were going to be used for, but probably for some sort of manufacturing. Uh, he was in charge of Nordhausen. He actually negotiated the surrender of Werner von Braun uh, to the Americans, and then he vanished. And this is a man who developed death camps, who built labor camps, built gas chambers and crematoria. He's never been heard of or seen of again, hardly ever mentioned. He's been airbrushed out of history. And it's pretty obvious that he was put S under some kind of witness protection, spirited away. Yeah. And, and a lot of these deeply unpleasant characters were redeployed and reused and found new masters. And another example of that is the Galen organization. Reinhard Galen, who was head of Hitler's intelligence on the Eastern Front, was used by the CIA to set up the Galen organization near Munich. 4,000. Uh, just after the war, was that? Yes, it was, because the, the, the Americans needed to fight the Soviets and East Germans in, in running battles and intelligence games across the rubble of, of Berlin. So Galen and his henchmen went round the internment camps selecting some of the nastiest characters you've ever come across. I mean, most of them were... Gestapo, SS, um, other secret organizations, even the head of Gestapo Vice, uh, who ended up vanishing when he was uh, putting wiretap cables across the canals in Berlin. Uh, he obviously fell into East German hands. So a lot of these people were redeployed. A lot of the scientists were spirited away to Britain and the United States under Operation Paperclip. And the Alsos mission that hoovered up all these nuclear scientists, uh, well over 100 of them, played its part in that. As a postscript, it's worth remembering the punishment that Germany was taking in the latter stages of the war. And you can tell that by what Albert Speer, the Nazi minister for armaments, wrote, hand wrote, in the two books that he sent to your grandfather, Tom, uh, Sir Arthur Harris, Bomber Harris. Yeah, this book Albert Speer wrote called Inside the Third Reich, which is about uh, the war itself. And this is what he says in the front. He writes, Sir Arthur, with my best wishes, I feel much better to send you kind regards rather than to be on the receiving end of your bombs. And then in the other book, um, he, he does a slightly longer so I won't read it all, but he says, in part of it, to Air Marshal Sir Arthur, who caused me so many sleepless nights of despair. There you go. And you, and you, and you think of the sleepless nights of despair that Albert Speer caused to so many slave labourers yeah, and so guy. many others across Europe during the war. It's a scary prospect to think that if the Nazis had somehow managed to build a nuke for all our successes after 1942, we might still have had to make a deal with them rather than to insist on unconditional surrender. And it is amazing to think that in the century since Ernest Rutherford split the atom in 1918, so much has changed and so much has moved forward. Thank you. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, 
it's free, to our podcast on the app you use, and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.